Today's guest is someone changing human relationship with oppression through the creation of her own learning center. In this episode, Nancy Luna Jimenez and I explore how the belief in basic human goodness allows us to move towards systemic change through personal growth, and how, at least in terms of racism, white people not only have the responsibility, but the power to transform oppression today. This is the Super Givers Podcast. already curious about this identity theme here uh, okay for you and and how it's come about so perhaps that's a beautiful way to introduce yourself to the listeners um yeah. and who are you and what is it about your names that uh you'd, you'd love to share yeah sounds great okay. <laughs> i love it jesse thanks <laughs> so um uh, my name's nancy uh, luna jimenez that's the way that I'm known. I often use my middle initial E only because people tend to think that Luna is my middle name and it's not. It's um, my first of my two last names. And um, my last names are really significant. And I think there's definitely a syndrome or people talk about it among us independent consultants of uh, naming our companies after ourselves. And I think it could be confusing to think that I've done that because obviously Luna Jimenez is my last name, um, except that uh, Luna Jimenez is a name that I legally took on when I was 21. And so um, it was a, it was a bit of a longer story, which I can tell you into my background. Um, I was born into a family of uh, Mexican-American, um, second generation on my mom's side. Um, granddaughter of Mexican immigrants. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side, a man named Manuel Gutierrez, and my grandmother, Rita de Luna. And I grew up primarily around my Mexican-American family, although I would say that my my mom's generation very much identified as American, not necessarily with an emphasis on Mexican. Um, they were in the McCarthy era. So there was a very big downplay on anything other than being completely American, obviously because of the House on Un-American Committee and the huge uh, communist scare and targeting of of anyone who perceived to be doing un-American activities. And so that had all sorts of implications. and yet my grandparents were both born and raised in Mexico and my grandparents were monolingual Spanish speaking until they passed in their 70s and 80s. And so it, it was a, that was the family that I grew up most around. Um, my, grand, my father's side is Puerto Rican. So that's my Jimenez side. And um, his mother, um, Edominga Jimenez Perez is her name. Um, and my father came to the mainland of the United States, as did many young, single, able-bodied um, Puerto Ricans um, to, as part of the one-way tickets, Operation Bootstrap. It was, it's really post-Operation Bootstrap, but around the time when the U.S. government was trying to create an what they would call an ideal third world economy. And so Puerto Rico was, a, was part of the recent acquisitions, if you will, that came out of the Spanish-American War in 1898, uh, along with Philippines, you know, Cuba, um, uh, and many other nations, Guam, Yasmoa. And so the U.S. government decided to make Puerto Rico be this example. And what it meant, there were many things that it meant, I won't go into the full policy, but part of it was to artificially lower the um, unemployment rate. And they did that by getting rid of basically the labor pool that would have been unemployed. And they sent them to the United States with one-way tickets. My father was part of that exodus um, and became part of the labor force of the mainland U.S. And so when my father, as with the siblings that came to the mainland, um, presented to immigration that their name was Rivera Jimenez, U.S. Customs decided that the last name was their last name. So all of my family on the island are Rivera and all of my, uh, although we use two last names in Puerto Rico, so Rivera Jimenez, and all of my family that came and landed in the United States and had permanent status here, obviously now, um, all became Jimenez. Mm-hmm. And so 
I carried my grandmother's, my father's mother's last name from birth on my birth certificate. And then when I was 21, I decided that I wanted to add my mother's mother's name. I wanted to be named for my grandmother's. And my older sister had their first name um, in her first and second name. And her name is uh, Risa Dominga. So I decided to take their last names. And so that's when I changed my last name to Luna Jimenez. I'm guessing this had to be profoundly influential in your identity formation in, in terms of the work you're doing now. Yeah, but just seeing yourself in the world, right? Yeah, I, I, for me, it was a, it, it marked a moment of tremendous healing for me. Um, I, although I didn't really understand all that it was going to entail, I already knew at that moment um, that I was ready to claim both my heritages in a way that I had not been allowed to claim, I think, or understood what it meant to claim or to be connected with um, up until that point, even though I was raised around my Mexican American family, um, very much, you know, every Sunday we were at my grandmother's house. She would make, you know, her her famous dish was chicken mole. Um, there was always fresh tortillas. You know, tons of cousins running around. You know, we rented out halls for holiday events because, and the church these were church halls, by the way. So the Catholic nearby Catholic parish, because we just had so much family and everyone was around. And yet I was treated differently than my other cousins because I was the one that looked most African heritage and the one that looked most, um, most Puerto Rican. Um, and that was part of the internalized oppression. So um, some of my mother's siblings married uh, other Mexican-Americans um, and some married white, but my mom was the only one who married a Puerto Rican. And there's a ton of internalized anti-Black, internalized racism in the Mexican community that's not a surprise. Um, We brought that from Mexico. So that was our version of the internalized racism. And to be in Detroit and particularly, oh my goodness, in the 50s and 60s, um, it's it's a Black city. It's still a Black city. It will always be a Black city. Um, And the way that that played out um, among the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans was that the Mexicans definitely saw Puerto Ricans as more African heritage and therefore more black and therefore lower on the race scale. So, um, and, and that it's a, it's a painful acknowledgement. It's a very different historical context for how racism, the, the legacy of racism and colonization as a Spanish colony in Mexico defined blackness very differently than in English colonial legacy, which is what we had in the U.S. So they don't map neatly. So let me just start by saying that. That being said, there's still a tremendous um, set of self-hatreds, of pain, of, of denial, of disparagement of, of Blackness um, among Mexicanos. And so my mother basically was cursed. You know, she, she told my grandmother that she was in love with my father. My grandmother said, you can't be with the Puerto Rican. We forbid it. You know, my mom was the only surviving daughter of my grandmother had 14 children, seven of whom uh, survived to adulthood. Um, only one daughter survived in a Mexican immigrant family. And my mother was her interpreter. She did all of her letter writing. She, you know, she was my grandmother's public face. Um, she also helped my mother with all of making out her tamales and her tortillas, which she sold around the neighborhood. It's how she made, you know, side monies. And so the relationship and the role that my mom played as the female was really important in that family. And yet the idea that my mother wanted to be with a Puerto Rican was forbidden. And my mom tried to get the priest, you know, to give you know, the blessing. And in front of the priest, my grandparents gave their blessing. And then when my dad showed up to pick up my mom for a date, you know, my grandmother threw hot coffee on him. And um, the story goes that my parents eventually eloped um, in order to get married. My grandmother cursed my mother and said, you're cursed for marrying a Puerto Rican is that you're going to have black babies. And so this is the story that I heard growing up. Um, It's, it, it was probably nothing I should have heard as a child growing up, but I did. And I was the one that was very clear as I looked around, although I wasn't the darkest of my cousins, I was absolutely the one that had, you know, the frizzy hair and, the, you know, pelo malo and the one who looked most African. Um, if, if there's a look that's African or black, that was the look I had. And so I knew, even though we never talked about it, it was never discussed. 
um, I felt not claimed in this very particular way. Um, to this day, you know, everyone says your older sister looks like your mother. You look just like your father. Like you're clearly Puerto Rican. And so even though I was mixed heritage, I would very much want to claim only being Puerto Rican, even though I didn't grow up around other Puerto Ricans except for my dad and his brother. And I don't even think I understood what it meant to be Puerto Rican. I just knew that I had not felt claimed as being Mexican. And so it really was a, a journey and a path that I knew I needed to be on. And Lillian really helped my mentor, Lillian Ribal Rose, who I'll speak a little bit more about a little bit later, really emphasized why it was so important that I not hate a part of myself. And I think I rejected in some ways being Mexican or identifying with my Mexican family because I felt rejected by them, not understanding that the complication of basically internalized racism, what was what was happening in the family. And so, you know, it was only after my grandmother had died, and unfortunately, that I realized she didn't love me any less than her other grandchildren. She just herself was dark. She was India, Mestiza, and she believed that if you have whiter, lighter grandchildren, you have less racism and you are doing them a service to have less racism and to become white. And so it's a pain of assimilation. Um, and yet it is, unfortunately, I can say it's the assimilated ones that are among us today, right? We survived colonization and imperialism because we figured out some way to assimilate and not be genocided. And so I, I now see her pain for what it was and not a personal experience of me. And I also know that part of my work and what motivated me to want to start this business 26 years ago this month, as I sat in my two-day workshop with my mentor, Lillian Roybal-Rose um, in Watsonville, California at the YWCA. I was very clear leaving those two days that if I had had an understanding and a language to describe the experience of being this young, brown, frizzy-haired girl, who was deeply cherished by her grandmother. Um, but it was just racism that had been internalized that had confused her. I could have had a really different relationship with her when she was alive. And I would have had a really different relationship with myself and um, would not have had the years of trying to change my hair texture and my skin color and staying out of the sun and trying to make my hair do things that it couldn't do, um, all in the hope that she would love me. I so appreciate the, the sharing. It's such an amazingly rich story. And I wonder if it feels appropriate to link what I'm reading about is your concept with adultism, sort of being almost like the universal or the, fu the fundamental experience of oppression. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, you know, again, a, a language I didn't have before that workshop, and yet um, understanding the ways in which we as young people are not seen as fully human, are not understand, understood to have the range of the full human experience and intelligence, even though we're small, um, we may not have you know, we may not have full control of our, all of our bodily functions and we may not yet know how to walk and we can't speak in a language that every adult can understand as English. Um, but we're certainly talking and we're certainly feeling and we're certainly have a full mind as little ones. And um, that concept resonated so deeply for me um, as I began to try to make sense of the childhood that I had that was not about having parents that were to blame or even a family that was quote unquote, you know, messed up, which I think is a lot of how we talk about our families when we talk about the things that didn't go well in them, um, that there were bigger systems at play and that the ways in which I was mistreated as a young person were much more systemic and much more accepted socially at every level, at every class, in every social and socioeconomic background, in every race or ethnic group. Adultism will look different, but it's, it's essentially the way in which you're not believed just because you're a child. And an adult's word is 
being given credibility or you're pressured to do things or you're not even considered in what you would like or you know the the phrases that just like a kind of like a very limited set of questions we seem to ask young people like what's your favorite topic in school as if school is the only thing that matters to them or what do you want to be when you grow up as if you're not being something right now mm. <clears throat> and so these are the very insidious ways but you know adultism is is it's everywhere it's ubiquitous um and once i understood that concept and also the way that you know young people come into the world knowing they're in charge they don't question um their power or their impact or their influence. Um, and so what has happened to us where we become adults in a society where we see gross injustice all around us and yet all of us on some level either are inact, you know, we, we go passive, we're timid, um, we're not the brave way that we wanna be and then we're hard on ourselves as adults because we didn't take the stand or we weren't the visible ally or we didn't notice something that seems so blatant to someone that we care about from a target group, but it just, you know, went right by us and we didn't see it. I don't think that's how we started. I don't think that's who we would like to be. And I think having an understanding of how much adultism has hurt us and that we're still needing to acknowledge and, and work through that and in very specific ways that we work through them is through emotional healing. Um, I think for me was transformative. I, I, there's no other word for it. I, I got out of a, of a paradigm of trying to get men to get how bad my life was as a female. I got out of a, a where it felt really stuck that I wanted white people to understand that they were ruining the lives of people of color. And as soon as you all understood how bad you were and how bad you were making our lives, then you, you'd quit it. Like I really thought it was like this intellectual activity or, or a shaming activity. And so that's where a lot of my energy went in the early parts of my activism and it was really driven from a place of pain. And, you know, when Lillian said to me, no movement you're a part of is going to be any healthier than you are. You know, I'd, I'd wanted to argue with her very vehemently up until that point. And then I realized, Oh, I could see the pain running through all of my activism. I was a perfect reproduction of my pain and I was reproducing it in the form of so-called justice work. I, and before we move off it, I, I want to acknowledge that, I think what strikes me about how you speak about your journey to this point is that you both recognize your experience <clears throat> of adultism as a young person, but then mm -hmm. it seems to me, it seems like you have so much love and, and understanding of the systems that influence that adultism, not so much the people. So it feels like you've gotten to a really loving place with it. it it's a, tricky topic to bring up in countless workshops with all kinds of people all over the world because we love i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say that everyone can access this but for the most part young people love their parents young people can see the tremendous sacrifice and effort and to be honest being a parent is to be a miracle worker you know it is a leap of utter faith that you you know a young being has put their entire existence in your hands and you're without a manual and any training, good luck, you know, you get sent home or you're at home and you figure it out. And many of us without any idea about what we're doing and we still somehow manage to figure it out and we take risks and we try things and we make mistakes and we're forgiven and we try again for this thing called love of child you know um and so our, we sit we feel that with our parents like yeah my parents messed up a ton and they will for the most part be happy to tell you about it um and this model this framing this language allowed me to really truly see and love my parents for the miracle workers they are and be outraged at the oppression that they passed on to me just finally have righteous indignation on my own behalf, um, which I think until I had had that, I had misplaced my indignation um, and really felt like it was the thing that was fueling my passion for social justice, not realizing I was still looking to be recognized, like I wanted my hurt acknowledged as a young person. And so I was building movements and doing movement work based on a hurt from a childhood that nobody said was real nobody saw as real. And yet I knew I lived, lived it really every day. 
and in a society where I knew I needed to love my parents and I couldn't blame my parents. So I needed some place to displace that anger and rage. And this model and this frame really has allowed me to name it for what it is, give it its full credence, be able to stand up against it. And at the same time, see that my parents were also infected by adultism and other oppressions and appreciate the love and compassion they were able to give me in spite of what they didn't themselves didn't get. You've mentioned your mentor and you've mentioned the incredible maybe culmination of some work that resulted in t- sort of taping, taking back your lineage and your name. Yeah. And you're also mentioning this model. So I was going to ask if maybe this is this model, right? What has been the, the vehicle for transformation along this pathway for you that you want to share about? Yeah. So the, I will say, so there, there's, there, there's a, my, so my, my, my mentor, Lillian Royball Rose, um, she started her organization in the 80s and she learned much of what she taught me from her mentor. So I want to name her as well, a woman named Dr. Erica Sherover Marcuse, um, who I think was m- way ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And she has, her lineage has continued to spread in parts, you would be surprised. Like I think the Oakland men's project, her work shows up there and Todos and like, she's just had these effects. And I feel like no one really understands the root of Ricky. Like there's just so much that goes back to her. There are many, many things that I learned from, from Lillian and I learned from Ricky. I never met Ricky. Ricky died of breast cancer before I met Lillian. Um, but I would say the main vehicle and model for transformation is one that Lillian learned from Ricky, and it's based on a theory that comes out of the reevaluation counseling communities. And it is this idea that um, every human is completely good, which I have to tell you was not how I started as the premise of my activism. That was not a framework I could embrace easily and still struggle with, to be totally honest. And yet I know it's a radical beginning. Um, that every human is completely good and that any way in which we do not act from that sense of connection and loving and brilliance and compassion and justice, I believe in that core sense of ourselves, is a direct result of how we've been hurt and not yet been able to heal from oppression. And so the healing mechanisms are very specific and there's a there's been a growing body of work, I think, that is now in the field of what's called racial healing work. And it's been comforting to see this field grow and become legitimized. And it's also been a little bit um, cautionary for me because there's a lot that lives under that umbrella that I would not call particularly healing. Um, and I would say that this methodology is very specific and um, uh, I have not seen other methodologies within the racial healing umbrella or a racial healing tent that really come close to this. Um, this idea, um, this mechanisms of discharge, which is our, which are basically laughing, crying, shaking, yawning, talking, and sweating. Those are the main mechanisms of discharge. Are discharges that we do naturally as young people. And again, this is the idea that young people know exactly how to heal whenever they would get hurt. We don't have to teach them. They don't need a degree. It's not an intellectual exercise. They don't need to describe the feelings they're having, which is a big place in which we sort of give kudos to young people. We'll talk about your feelings. Tell me how you're feeling. We want to turn feelings into an intellectual activity. And that is not what young people do. Young people feel their feelings. They show their feelings. They let them go when they show their feelings, and then they're done. And what happens because of adultism is we adults want to control the feelings. We want to suppress the feelings. We want to stop the feelings. And that's part of how adultism basically keeps us not only are we getting oppressed, so oppression's happening, we're getting, you can't hurt people and oppress people without feelings, so you've got these feelings now because you're getting oppressed, but now you're being told, oh, you better not have those feelings because as soon as you have those feelings, you're now going to get targeted for having the feelings. So you've got layer upon layer of oppression now. So now you've got young people with all of these hurts that 
now they want to get out and they can't get them out. So they're going to do things against themselves because they have no place for those feelings to go. Because you start to cry and you get said, what gets said to you, Jesse? If you started to cry as a little boy, what would they say? I had some pretty conscious parents, but I understand what you're going for. I hear you. It would be a suppression of, you know, some form of shaming or, yeah. um, or just saying, you know, it's okay. I think that's like the most common one that people misunderstand is like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to try to take the pain away. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Even if it's not like the direct shaming, it's, it's more in the subtlety of trying to kind of caretake that experience so that it mutes. Brilliant. That's exactly what it is. And it can be everything. I mean, we've had, I've had definitely people in my workshop say they would get literally beaten every time that they would start to cry. And I'm using tears as an example, but it's yeah. any of these feelings. Um, so they would, everything from being beaten to have a cookie or let's go to a movie or you're tired. Right. And so all of the messages we're getting is, well, what I'm really feeling must not be what I'm really feeling. Like yeah. I'm in trouble or I'm, I don't, I'm not getting it right. Or I don't understand my own experience. Right. I don't have the agency and, over my own internal experience. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that somehow the message we get also is that our feelings are threatening the adults around us. Like right. they're they scared can't. and they don't know what to do with them. They can't handle them. Exactly. And everyone sort of hears us describe these experiences in childhood and, and somewhat recognizes them. And then I want to say, so how does this translate to equity and racial justice work today as adults? Right. Because you've now got people who have been tar targeted with, for, and I'm going to use racism as an example here, with racism for centuries, with being told they're not supposed to be upset that they've been targeted with racism for centuries. And we've got a lot of this like, calm down, it's not that bad, you're overreacting, I didn't mean it, you know, and so it's again, it's that same response because we now are adults that don't really have skills and tools to deal with our own feelings and therefore we want to suppress others and it becomes racism in the same way that suppressing a young person's emotions becomes adultism. We're not talking about people being good and bad. We've already established everyone is good and that's really the radical foundation upon which we must do this work because once we start trying to defend, well, no, but I'm good and I didn't mean it, well, then we can't get anywhere because then it's like, well, I can always say it was racism and you can always say it wasn't and then we go nowhere. But what if we could just assume you're a really good, amazing human being who's white and I'm a really good, amazing human being who's Latina and you acted in such a way that suppressed my experience and that became racism and then we can work on discharging where, where did you get the message to suppress someone else's experience? Because you got that as a young person because it happened to you first. Mm. Mm, yeah, I'm feeling my, my own chest sort of open up and relax, even just hearing that approach. Yeah. And it gives grace. I think it gives grace to us all. Um, and it makes us all accountable. And I think that's the powerful thing about this model. And it seems like, among other things, for people who may not be able to hold the emotional space for their actions, that it helps them temporarily disconnect from so much um, intensity around it. Like you're good. So we don't have to, we don't have to worry about that space for a second. We're going to talk about your behavior. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to discuss your impact. Um, and it Say seems more like, about that. Uh, just that it might give people a temporary access to openness. Ah, uh, I see. Rather than getting stuck in, well, I'm, I'm immediately hearing that as a judgment about, myself and so I can't even hold the space for your experience because mm -hmm. I'm so fragile or I'm, I just don't have the resilience for it for whatever reason right mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think you know I I, I want to come back a little bit to the idea of this the terms that are really common right now which are fragility and resiliency and um, I, I, I feel like what we have <sighs> I don't want to say this. You could use this as an example right now, right? I just used it <laughs> and they had an impact. <laughs> they did. Okay. Um, so I, I feel like fragility is being thrown around as a really bad word right now and a way to sort of 
mm, almost police um, people who are on the, what we call the non-target side, and I'm, I'm gonna keep using race for now, um, but we could use this for any um, oppression. So um, for white people, and I know that there's a whole body of work on white fragility, which I, I wanna question the need to highlight um, the ways in which white people I want to back this up. Let me see. How do I want to say this? Racism has devastated us all. And when I, as a person of color, am trying to make you as a white person understand my experience, you have been made, you've been, you've been systematically made clueless, Jesse. In order to function as a white person in an oppressive society where you are systematically oppressing people of color on a minute by minute, day by day basis, regardless of your actions, it's not about your actions, it's about systems and you're part of them. You have to be a combination of numb, and clueless in order to simply walk out your door. We don't talk about what happens to non-targets on the non-target sides of oppression. And yet, this is one of the biggest costs for all of us who are non-targets. And obviously there's places I am non-target. Once I have awareness as a person of color, I want you to get it, right? And I want you to understand my pain. You have to remember, though, everything about your existence, if you've been cultivated into cluelessness, can't see or understand or recognize this experience. And to do so, you'd have to face something about yourself, about the way that you were raised, perhaps about your, your parents, the ways that you were lied to, systematically denied information. And so, of course, you're going to have a bunch of feelings and you're going to need a place to go with those feelings. The problem is, is that because there is no acknowledgement of this experience and there's nothing set up structurally for white people to do this, white people continue mistakenly to think that the role of people of color is to provide that space for you. It is not our job to do that. And yet I can tell you it is the most radical act I have ever been allowed to do is to create that space of healing for white people because what it does is it helps now, it ensures that white people understand that ending racism is on your is for your best interest, not for mine. And so I think this idea that somehow white tears or white fragility needs to be suppressed is that same story of suppressing people's healing. And we need to understand the difference between people, white people needing to take up space to tell their story of how bad it's been as a white person in front of a bunch of people of color who may not have the slack or attention to listen, and the very legitimate real pain that white people have that absolutely needs to be expressed, that needs to be felt, that needs to be discharged, because when it doesn't get discharged, when it isn't healed, it becomes Charles, Charlottesville. Like, that's what happens. That pain turned into a very visceral expression of, you know, Jews will not replace us. You know, we are here. We want, a, we want, you know, we want to be white people somewhere. Like there's something that's not been discharged and healed. And so we've got these two ends of white liberal wokeness that's like policing white tears and white fragility. And then we've got this extreme hate expression on the other end. And it's all coming from the same pain. And I think part of this next period for me of work, and, and I want to say, like, I didn't invent this work. Ricky was doing this work 50, 60 years ago when she started. She's been working with white people to reclaim home and to find a sense of belonging with other white people well before there was any understanding of why this work would be crucial in the ways that we are seeing today. 
And to be honest, that work was not understood. And I think it can be easily misunderstood today. And so I only do it within the very specific constraints of a three-day workshop with a ton of scaffolding and a lot of understanding about what it means for us to work with white people to reclaim a sense of home and a sense of belonging. And I'm not talking about a white nation, um, but there is a sense of whiteness that people, white people need a place to go back to because without it, you're going to continue to steal other people's homes. You're going to continue to take and believe that every other place gets to be your home because the truth is white people are feeling homeless for a reason. You have been disconnected. That's part of the systematic hurt. Um, the non-target side of racism is that you lost a sense of home and connection and belonging with each other specifically as a group. Now, the goal is not to keep you separate, but until you have a sense of that, you're going to have this big empty black hole in the center of what feels like belonging and connection. And you keep trying to fill that void with us or extracting from the planet or our culture or our food. And you can't do it. It, it just needs to be grieved. There's only grieving to do. Yeah, thank you for pausing and backing up and centering yourself around that. Thanks. I, yeah. I, I know this is, it's controversial work and it's challenging work and it's hard. For me, it's not an intellectual set of work. It, it's an emotional set of work. And so part of, for me, doing these workshops and part of the work that I started with Lillian, you know, 26 years ago was until we create spaces where people know that it's safe to really do this emotional work together, we can't continue to talk about it. it. And as much as I love writing and I am, you know, working on my first book and, you know, writing blogs or as much as I love doing these podcasts, it's, it's an experience. It's not an intellectual activity. And so that's challenging. It's challenging to try to talk about it and explain it and invite people into the work from that place. One thing I like that you mentioned to me was that relationships are the ongoing basis for learning. Um, which I wholeheartedly experienced myself. So if you're willing, and I'm just going to trust yeah. you to, to redirect if, as needed. Sure, sure. The, the interesting moment a few minutes ago that, that seemed to um, catalyze your riff there was, you know, I mentioned the fragility and resilience words. And so in, as an example, is one thing you're saying that in that moment you would help me recognize that I need to become more conscious of where those words are coming from in myself, but not necessarily ask you to hold space for that. I think that could be part of it. Um, I'm going to tell a story, and this is a story that um, many folks have, at my workshops have heard in the last couple of years. It's a pretty new experience for me, and I, I think of it as a little bit of an aha moment in my own trajectory, and I think it might connect here. Um, and I have my partner's permission to tell the story because it's about him. So um, I started, it's a relatively new relationship. We've been together uh, um, going on four years now. Um, and many reasons why I fell in love with this man and decided that I wanted to life partner with him. Um, but one of them is that I, we both have an, a great sense of adventure around travel and we're both incredibly uh, resourceful when it comes to traveling and not are not so interested in sort of traditional kinds of tourist kinds of experiences and can really make things happen out of nothing. So like our first time traveling together was in Algeria, for example, where there was zero infrastructure for U.S. tourism and was not, and we didn't meet a single U.S. or the entire time we were there. And, you know, he, he does intense tremendous research and he's phenomenal. And um, he's white and he's raised, he's middle class and he's Protestant um, and obviously he's a man. And so on every access of those four that I just named, um, he would be in the non-target and I would be in the target. And um, I've really enjoyed, you know, partnering with him on our travels and, tra and planning together. And we were going to be going to Puerto Rico which is where my dad's family's from. And um, I, we were having a family reunion. He was going to meet all my extended family. And I was in charge. I wanted to be in charge of the travel. So this was a really big deal for me. I was like, I know the cool places. I know the right rental cars. I know the right hotels. So I got this, you know. And because I'm really into being organized, I set up a whole project management 
Trello board. I was really into Trello at the time. So everything was on Trello and online and cloud-based and we could collaborate there and he could see my work evolving. And so um, we were meeting up with my family that were traveling um, from other parts of the U.S. Um, in San Juan before we decided to go west for uh, to Aguada, where my dad's from. And I knew that we weren't going to make uh, it to pick up the rental car on time that we had picked up at, at Charlie's. And Charlie's is local. And uh, most people don't know about Charlie's, but if you're going to Puerto Rico, they're the only people I rent cars from. So um, I turned to my partner and I was like, hey, would you mind giving... Charlie's a call. Um, we're not going to make it on time because there's other stuff going on with my family. Let him know we'll be two hours late. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to do that. Like, uh, I was like, I, I get that. I get that you would say that. I said, I don't have time to go into it right now. I said, but you know, it's local. They, they don't hold cars for a while. They don't have a lot of stock. I would appreciate if you'd give them a call. The numbers in the Trello board, I need to go deal with my mom. So he said, okay. And so then I went to go deal with my mom. And a couple hours later, I came back to him and I was like, so, hey, did you give Charlie's a call? And his response was, the number wasn't in the Trello board. And I love your face because your face says exactly how I was feeling at that moment, um, except I was also furious and like I couldn't even see straight at that point. And he knew he had just said something wrong, but he didn't know what, and he didn't know why. And I was furious. And I just, all I kept saying is, I'm so furious right now. I just want to scream. And he was like, tell me what I did. I, I won't do it again. Tell me what I did. And I remember at that moment saying, I don't have attention. When he's saying, tell me what I did, what he's really saying is, exactly, he's really saying, I need you to listen to me because I'm really scared that I lost a connection with you. I'm really scared that I did something racist, sexist, classist, you know, whatever. You can fill in the blanks there. Um, he got frozen in, in his terror, and he needed me to attend to that fear for him. And to be honest, and if, if I want to just take a sideline here, anytime I want a white male ally to show up for me, I need to be able to know what they have slack around and what they don't. It doesn't make sense for me to keep expecting them to show up in a place where they haven't done their work and then be disappointed that they haven't done their work when there hasn't been a space created for them to do their work and they don't know what that means to do their work. So this is like the bigger picture that I feel like we keep as people of color being disappointed and yet it's not an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional body of work that crushed white people into becoming oppressors that that they didn't they weren't born that way you had to crush you had to be crushed into that role and so i knew i didn't have that slack and so i said i said do you have the attention to listen to me because i'm furious and i was asking him you know can you show up for me in this moment and he instead of saying yes i can listen i said i need to be really mad and he said tell me what i did he just said that same thing and i was like okay, so you're not the person that I can get listening from right now. And so I said, I'll be with you in a minute. And I had enough awareness at that moment to be like, this, I'm pissed about sexism, racism, classism. This has nothing to do with him. I mean, yes, he just did something that I need to deal with, but my rage is old. It predates him. I mean, it's a three-year-old relationship at this two years relationship at this time. Clearly, it predates him. So I picked up the phone. I got on the phone with people who practice this tool, who, uh, uh, you know, ascribe to this theory, this methodology. I got to rage. I got to scream. I got to, you know, feel undermined. I got, to, I got how dare he think he's smarter than I am. I can't believe he was passive. Like, I just got to let it all out. And then I came back and was able to say, okay, I'm ready to listen to you. And when he's saying, tell me what I did, too often, right, we as people of color or the people on the target side want to say, okay, white person or male or whatever, I'm going to give you the information about what you did. And now don't ever do that again. And really, that's what he wanted. He wanted a recipe to never do those things again. Why? Because he never wanted to see me angry again. That cannot be the criteria upon which we're going to build an authentic relationship that's transformational in the space and social justice. In fact, part of his work and I would say the work of all non-targets is how do you sit in my rage? How do you learn to be 
okay and dis and with and dis and uncomfortable with it. Now, that doesn't mean that I I can expect every man or every white person to be ready to do that, not having done any of their own work or knowing where that work begins. And so I think this is the place where as a movement, we have not built the scaffolding. We haven't created the frames. We haven't given the practices where we are in it every day with each other so that we can show up more and more present each time. And so I made the decision to listen to him in that moment, knowing that I had gotten listened to elsewhere and I could create the space for him to do his healing work. Knowing that, and at the end of that moment, I said to him, in the long run, this won't work as a relationship if it continues to be one way. In the long run, there's going to be a body of work that you're going to need to commit to outside of us and resources you will need. And I'm committed to you and we will do this and fill it, figure this out together. And I, I, you know, I'm using a romantic relationship as a description, but to me, it's not different than how I would approach any ally that I want in my life. I have to be committed to their growth and their growth means me growing enough to be able to listen to them in the very places that they are hurting me or it feels like they're hurting me in the present moment. The truth is anything he was doing in that present moment to me was early stuff that had gotten triggered and re-stimulated that I can always work on elsewhere while I continue to build my capacity to be present with him. He didn't choose to act out racism or sexism or you know, classism in my direction, and he needs a place to heal from that. What, if I can comment on what feels incredibly gracious about all that from my agent status <laughs> in the world. Um, <laughs> sure. I think one thing I love about it is that you're committed to this sort of like, almost like a spiritual practice, I would say, of emotional heroism, which is, which is, one of the ways my mentor describes, you know, being able to hold space for someone else's experience so that we can actually get to a place of mutuality, of equity, of, of connection, right? Mm. Um, so I want to acknowledge that before I say the next part, because the next part is very like me beneficial. <laughs> uh, but I think it's hopeful because I know as a, as a person who basically most moments in my life are spent as a non-target. And I know that um, many, if not most, if not all, people who walk around with my level of agent rank in the world can feel this sense of stuckness between, I want to feel all this and I want to be in the midst, but I don't know if I have the right to work through it and how to do that and where to take that. So I appreciate you speaking to all those layers in a way that feels like there's a there's an approachability to, for my experience, that actually serves both of our experiences. And I think a lot of the white people I know are struggling with what that looks like. And so the natural response can be anything from, as I'm sure you know, from like a withdrawal or a contraction. Yeah, thank you. And I, I mean, I would say withdrawal makes sense. I, I think we see that a lot. I think the other thing I'm seeing is kind of like that extreme, you know, wokeness policing so that's kind of the other end of of both of those and i i think without places to go for white people to do this healing work um you know and and both of those end up also with numbing behaviors on the side right so then there's like the drinking that goes with the activism or smoking part that goes with the activism or there's the withdrawal that goes with like netflixing or computers or overwork or you know this isolation, I think that's the really the big brutal overlap, overlapping one of all of them. So I want to acknowledge like those tend to be two extremes and often people will toggle between the both. White people will toggle between the both. Um, and I, I think we have to figure out ways together um, that white people have each other and can do this work together. And there are a few places that I know of where that work is definitely happening, but not enough. And I think not with the frame of healing, not with the frame 
of the emotional discharge and releasing and the understanding of the cost to white people on the non-target side of racism, not, oh my God, I'm this horrible perpetrator and I'm making things worse because of I'm clueless, but more like, oh my God, my life has been devastated because I'm in this role of continuing to act out these oppressor patterns and it's disconnecting me from my people and myself and there's a cost to me as a white person. And I think, you know, when I first started this work um, 26 years ago, I was really clear that I wanted to get this information into communities of color. And I was like, and I wanted to do healing work with people of color so we could end racism. And, you know, I look back now and I think, oh my goodness, I had no idea that my decision to end racism meant that I would be working with a lot of white people. Mm. Because the truth is, racism is not our issue. Um, We have internalized racism, as I started our time together with describing, I hope, quite personally. Um, It's been brutal in my life and it's had huge effects and it has devastated our communities and continues to keep us from uniting and working together and understanding and loving ourselves and each other's communities of color. But to end racism, I have to and I want to work intimately and closely with white people. And my vision is to create a cadre of people of color who are committed in this way that want to do enough of our own work as people of color to be able to show up in a way with white people that is truly transformative for them and points them towards each other that like sets up entire spaces where we can help them find each other and fall in love and come home to each other again. I'm really excited about that. And I'm going to, I love that you're in Portland because I'm going to check out some of your stuff for myself. <laughs> I'm glad you are too. Yes. And can, we have people coming from all over. So yeah. Wonderful. Can you extend this a few minutes? I can. I wanted to okay. talk a little bit about the um, transformational leadership right. work a little bit. So let me okay. just, yes, absolutely. Well, it's so, it's funny that you asked me the leaders that I admire. Um, I, we actually actually have an activity that opens our transformational leadership workshop. So um at the risk of disclosing the outcome of that activity um, Mm -hmm. for you or others who will go through it. Mm -hmm. Um, We ask everyone to come up with um, a quality or an element of a a leader that uh, leadership that they admire. And we create this kind of exhaustive list and it's both an impressive list and it's a terrifying list um, because what it reveals is that the way that we tend to think about and describe leadership is absolutely unattainable for all of us. And none of us feel like we're the leader that we want to be or could ever be that person. And so we tend to shut down and tend to back away. Pulls on that like not enough part. Totally. And this idea of, I, of admiring or, and I'm, and I'm extreme, I'm extreme, I'm, I'm I'm going on the extreme of this, which you didn't say, but like the way that we admire, but also like, elevate leaders into yeah. a realm that's not human. Right. And so I've quite a, I've really made it a practice not to admire leaders and to not use that framing around leaders because I think it takes us out of the human realm and every human is a leader and every human leads to the capacity at which they have healing and thinking and their patterns are going to show up more brutally and visibly out in the open for everyone to see when you're leading. And some of those patterns are really destructive and should not be in leadership positions. And some of those patterns need to be given, given places to say no and people get to heal, but no leader is without pattern. And I think that's really important for me to hold out. Um, I will say, so when I, I started this organization 26 years ago, It really was an excuse to just travel with Lillian, to learn from her, to apprentice. Um, Many years I traveled with her, I didn't say anything. I basically got her water and tea and I, you know, took care of the temperature and the lights in the room and learned from her. And I was terrified to speak because I wasn't her and I was going to disappoint people and I wasn't going to sound as smart as her and as elegant as her. And at some point she was just about to fire me and I decided that I needed to see myself as a leader regardless of whether I could be her or not, I needed to be me. And that was a transformative moment in both of our relationship. And as I continued to do this work, I started to add more to what was her essential, um, she had a core workshop that she delivered called Understanding and Being Understood, a very beautiful, clear invitation to ally work and to healing work. 
And um, I started I started doing facilitation, became certified as a professional facilitator. Um, people started asking me to do coaching because I was working a lot more with leaders and um, and keynote speaking. And then I realized that I was really developing leaders and I wanted to spend time talking about leadership. And so we expanded the two-day program into a three-day program with a 10-week follow-up. And the 10-week follow-up is premised on the constructivist listening practice, which I've mentioned a couple of times. That term is a term that was coined by Dr. Julian Weisglass. He's a professor emeritus of mathematics um, um, from UC Santa Barbara. He's a mentor and a dear friend of mine and uh, very committed to doing work on equity in education, particularly math education, and built some organizations and has done a lot of work and continues to do work in that realm. Um, and the constructivist listening practice is, is it's essentially an exchange of listening and speaking time where a speaker and a listener get exactly the same amount of time in both roles and that everything that is spoken is completely confidential. So in a nutshell, it's a very basic, simple practice, but I've seen people call things like constructivist listening, not be constructivist listening. So it's, we're not processing together. We're not pair sharing. Like it's none of that. It's specifically for emotional healing work and you're exchanging attention um, for one person. So the person who's listening is literally saying nothing and the person who's speaking can talk or not talk or just discharge however they want to use their attention or their time as this in the speaker role. And so that program has been a very powerful program because we really are encouraging people to take the, the information from the workshop, but now to create a practice of healing. So creating those very spaces that I have mentioned we don't have enough of, we built that into the Just Listening program. And so the program includes, you have a listening partnership for a week, but you also have video supports and you get email prompts to what to work on as you heal from a particular pattern of internalized oppression that you're carrying that has become oppression. So when we don't heal our internalized oppression, it becomes the thing that we then reenact. So if we go back to our earlier example, when you wanted to tell me how I wasn't, I'm okay and I'm not having feelings and you're suppressing my feelings of rage as racism, that became racism, but that's because you got suppressed first as a young person and your internalized oppression was to suppress that. So it became oppression as you become an adult now. So after realizing that we want, we want more people leading in this work, we want more people being visible, what's stopping us, what's preventing us from being more, uh, taking more risks, being bolder, taking initiative, um, we designed and premiered last year um, on our 25th anniversary tour, a transformational leadership program and a 10-week follow-up, but just listening additional. And I would say there's some core things that we're teaching in that program that I want to highlight around adultism. Um, and so specifically that we have very real needs that we did not get met as young people from our parents who did the best they could. Um, and they're the first leaders in our lives who many of us admire and were human and had patterns and got hurt. And so those hurts um, hurt us and we keep those hurts and we grow up with those hurts if we don't heal them. And then we start looking for our parents and our bosses. So we start hoping this boss is going to meet that need that never got met by our parents. And when we first enter new work relationships, it's that honeymoon period where, oh, this is going to be the best boss ever. They're going to be the one I've been waiting for and wanted. And, you know, eventually, right, we see their hurts and their patterns and we get disappointed. And then we start looking for the next boss, right? We start looking for the next job. And all of that, we say, it's, at some point, you know, you get to decide, you know, are these patterns that I can work with? And then how do I get close enough to that leader to give them a hand in the places where they're hurt? Because all leaders are hurt. And when we don't do that, when we idolize our leaders, we put them on pedestals and then we wait for them to fall. And when they do, they fall badly. And we then organize these public, often brutal attacks. And we talk about what an attack is how they function, how they keep people from leading and being bolder because we're all afraid of being the next one who's going to be attacked. And every time we allow an attack to go uninterrupted, we are basically suppressing the next person from leading and speaking up and being visible. And so much of this workshop is focused on healing from our early experiences of adultism, the way that they got attached to leaders. And then of course, the flip side is that many of us lead as if we want our, our parents. And so the patterns of leadership that we saw show up in our parents 
parenting, we then will either flip or replicate. And so we end up passing on these oppressions in our leadership in spite of who we are and what we want. And so I wanted to draw attention to that. We don't teach the, people can't attend the transformational leadership until they go through the transformational communication because we want people to have a basic understanding of adultism and of oppression theory and also of our modalities and healing um, around constructivist listening and discharge before applying that to the leadership work. But it is a very powerful experience um, to go deeply into that work and apply it to our own leadership. Thank you. Yeah. And we haven't named it specifically, um, but just for listeners, you know, you are the creator and founder of the Luna Jimenez Institute for Social Transformation in Portland. So if people are listening and they're curious to read more, learn more, um, where should we send them? Yeah. The best place to go would be to visit the website. um, And that's ljist.com. So logist.com. We say logist. Some people say algist. and there's more information there. Um, there's a blog. There's some video clips. Um, you can definitely get on our newsletter. And that's really the place to find out more about these longer programs. We've also premiered uh, four new short one-day programs. We've launched a new program on language liberation. I premiered that at a international conference in Brazil last year. Um, hopefully that will also be, um, that will actually be, we'll be doing a short version of that at the na- uh, National Conference on Race and Ethnicity, which is called ENCORE, and that will be happening in Washington, D.C., just after Memorial Day weekend, so the end last week of May. We will also be doing our transformational one-day, transformational leadership, sorry, sorry, transformational relationship there. We'll also be doing a workshop, a very short workshop, but one on debunking the myth of white privilege. We're going to talk about how we work with white people differently and why we don't ascribe to the idea of white privilege. And in fact, how white privilege reifies and reinforces racism. Um, And we will also be doing a workshop on adultism. Awesome. I'm so excited to look at your menu of things. (laughs) There's many things to choose from. Yep. Yeah. You and I I might have more to discuss. I look forward to it. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to mention um you still sort of avoided being able to name some people but that's okay i did <laughs> you named lillian and i have i i will I, I wouldn't say that i admire her because i think the reason she allowed me to travel with her was that i didn't admire her i saw her okay let's change the wording okay good to 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 allow this to be a more effective question it's I funny because it. i don't think i've ever said admire Oh. with any other guest. I'm trying to remember to ask this with every guest this season. <laughs> um, but I wrote leaders you admire. I will say that I've been, I've been blessed to have close in my life lots of young people who I've learned so much from about the power of forgiveness and leading in joy and living and leading in joy. And I've also been blessed, and, and, and I, I know this is going to sound oddly like Um, name dropping, but I happened to also be in Santa Cruz at a time as a graduate student when my neighbor was a woman named Gloria Anzaldúa, who is the author of uh, Mestiza, the the Borderlands. She's a radical or was a radical Chicana feminist. Um, I got to uh, be part of the team of people that recruited Angela Davis to our board of studies. And she was my workout partner and often dinner guest at my home. Um, I got to hang out with Gloria Watkins bell hooks and got to hear, you know, her preach about black women's literature and feminism as a young person. I've been exposed to some really amazing great minds and thinkers along my my short journey already on this planet. And I feel really blessed. And I think in addition to Lillian and Sherry Brown and many others who've crossed my path, I, I, I'm just feel blessed of the learning that I continue to learn from them and the ways that it shows up in my life. Yeah. Well, I feel really grateful for you to come spend the time with me and to share um, about your life and about your perspective. And hopefully people listening will be able to take something meaningful. I have no doubt. There's so much there. Thank you wholeheartedly for all the amazing work you're doing in the world. 
Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for bringing such a, an interesting array of people together to think out loud with you um, about this work. I feel like we need all of our minds together um, and our energy together if we're going to create the just world that I know we all came into the world believing we had a birthright to. And I think that's true. And I believe young people will lead the way. So um, they always have. Find out more about Nancy's work at ljist.com. I'll leave you with the Supergiver's leadership question of the day. If you could see yourself and others as good, no matter the behaviors and words displayed, where would your focus go next? This has been the Supergiver's podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. If you like what you're hearing and would like to support the show, you can do so with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can subscribe and listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.